from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Welcome back to another special edition of the Cup Podcast. I'm very happy to be sitting here uh, back home in Los Angeles now with Winston Wilde. Winston is a sexologist. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and what is sexology? What is it that you do? Well, sexology is the scientific study of sex, and there are many ways to apply that if you want to. One of the ways I apply it is as a therapist. I'm a sex therapist, but more so a psychoanalytic therapist working with erotic minority people. Another way to apply sexology is teaching. So I'm a professor of human sexuality and gender studies. And another way would be to do research, like Kinsey did research, and people have done research on circumcision, although most of it's very poor, as I'm sure we'll get into in our discussion. Um, Unfortunately, I'm ashamed to admit that most sexologists are unaware of this issue in America. They don't pay attention to it, and they don't want to. And uh, I've been definitely fighting an uphill battle on this to try to get my colleagues to pay attention. I think the reason is that most of the men are cut, And most of the women have sons that they cut. And they don't want me talking about the importance of foreskin. That's one thing. Another thing is is that Masters and Johnson, you know who they were? Okay, so William Masters, I'm going to assume, was circumcised because of the geography in which he grew up, where I think it's 99.2% of men are circumcised. And... You, you know, I've read almost everything he ever wrote, and I can tell that he knew very little about foreskin. And he made a comment in the 60s that there was no difference in sexual pleasure between cut men and intact men. There was no research done on it. It was just his observation. That's what he wrote. And from that the entire American sexology community has taken on this uh, mantle that it's okay to circumcise because there's no loss of sexual pleasure. I have submitted to speak on circumcision over and over and over, and sometimes it's accepted and I speak. And, for example, with Quad S, the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, it's been around over 50 years now, and they're a good group of people. And I've spoken there several times because they want to know the research. And But there is so little research done on foreskin that what I've been presenting is how all the research that we're paying attention to is misguided and that we need to really look deeply into these African studies and not just on the surface what they report after they stop them early before they've even finished them, you know, but like why did they stop them and blah, blah, blah. So that's what I report on there. But then there's another group that's much bigger called the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, also called ASECT. And I have submitted to speak to them over and over and they refuse to allow me to speak. And um, 
you know, so what happened was I, uh, somebody said, oh, well, if, you ta if you're talking against circumcision, that's too negative. So the last time I submitted to speak to them, three years ago or two years ago, it was called something, I don't remember the name of it, but it was something about the pleasures of foreskin you know, fun in the hood or something like that, you know, and like teaching people, I thought basically it just teach the anatomy of foreskin. Most of them don't even have a clue what a ridged band is or any of that, you know, and teach them the anatomy and then teach them some physiology and then teach them some pleasuring things that you can only do with foreskin, such as the way gay guys do docking, or I guess anybody can, you can dock up to a woman's breast if you want but you know when you put the penis head right up and then pull the foreskin over and connect to the other person it's kind of a nice sexually intimate thing to do and if you have your foreskin removed you can't do that that's not an option anymore and you know so but they wouldn't let me speak about that either the pleasures of foreskin and when i asked them why they kept rejecting me to speak about circumcision their answer was, it's not that important of an issue. And I said, the mutilation of 1.1 million baby boys a year in America of their penises is not a sexuality issue. How is it that you came to become interested in the subject of circumcision? Well, uh, being born into a Jewish family, I'm cut. So there, I've come out with that right away. And um, I think it was... I'm 55, and I think it was back in my early 20s, um, living in San Francisco back in the day, you know, in the great day when there was a cure for all sexually transmitted diseases and you didn't have to worry about anything. And I started having sex with lots of people. And um, I just remember having sex with guys with foreskin and thinking, wow, this is really amazing. I never knew, because at first I was a little repulsed by it, you know, it's foreign, it's different, I'm not used to this, and, and then I started getting really into it and thinking, wow, you can do so much with this little piece of skin, you know, if that's what it is. There's so much you can do, and watching other guys do all kinds of things with it, from stretching to nibbling on it to sticking needles through it, you know, whatever, there's just a million things you can do to it. And then starting to think, wow, why don't I have that? And um, then I, I think I kind of, my evolution was it didn't really bother me much more. I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. I just figured, okay, this is the way I am. You know, it was okay. And then in my mid-30s, I started getting, or late 30s, started feeling really kind of like ripped off. Like, okay, I guess I'm never going to get my foreskin back. And then I started getting really angry, which I think a lot of men do who become aware of what's happened to them. I got really angry for a few years that um, I was angry at my parents. I was angry at the frickin' Torah. I was angry at Judaism, at America, at the stupidity of people, at the medical establishment, at my friends who were still for circumcisions. I was just really angry and it took quite a while to um, chill out from it and I, I that's when I started doing my own research into it in my research into the research and seeing that I've been told a bunch of lies you know here I am this sexologist helping people with their sex lives and I've been totally misinformed 
on this subject that's so primitive to who I am. And then I started missing foreskin even more. And then I just, I don't know, I started reading a lot, Goldman's books and different people's books and talking to people and um, have just come to a place of peace. I don't know how, but I finally got here. So one of the most difficult things I find to talk to people, especially circumcised men, about in the larger subject of circumcision are the sexual effects of circumcision on male sexuality. Um, and to a certain extent, uh, as I've had some conversations now about the effects on female sexuality, but uh, mm -hmm. um, so my first question is a very general question, and it may have more to do with the nature of your discipline. But um, how is it that we can talk with any kind of degree of um, scientific objectivity about something as subjective as sexual experience, especially when you're comparing between, you know, two states, say, circumcised and intact. And then when you confound that with the fact that most men spend most of their lives either intact or cut, so they don't, most men don't have a way to compare. I don't think there is, uh, at this point, a whole lot of uh, research that could be done into this this uh, question that you're asking here. Uh, but we do have some case studies like Lars in your film, uh, who are men who are who get cut in after they've already reached sexual maturity and they can see the difference. Um, also, you know, I think a study could probably be done in the Philippines because they usually don't cut their boys until they're in high school. So many of them may have already been sexually active. I don't I've never done research in the Philippines, so I have no idea how you'd go about that. Uh, but you're probably aware, because you know so much about this, that there was a study done in San Francisco comparing intact men to cut men with, um, oh, I forget the name of the operating equipment that they use, but they were studying fine touch pressure thresholds. It's like a science. Simon's machine or something like that anyway. Uh, and they found that the men with uh, foreskins were much more sensitive, that they responded more to fine touch. And that the four places that they responded more were, were all on the foreskin. Right. Now, the difficulty, of course, still, even with that, and you can see this in the literature among the circumcision proponents, they will accept at this point as given scientific fact that there are a high concentration of Meisner's corpuscles exactly. in the distal ridges of the foreskin, but they won't accept that that has any correlation necessarily with sexual pleasure. And they may have a point insofar as sexual pleasure is a very difficult thing to describe scientifically. That's right. Um, so simply suggesting that there are Meisner's corpuscles and fine touch uh, benefits, if you will, okay. to the foreskin in and of itself doesn't demonstrate its role in male sexual experience or sexual function. Um, so what do you think about that? And, and has there been any more work to bridge that gap? Well, you're right, because this science that we're talking about is physiological data, right? And sexuality has such a huge 
psychological component, which maybe can't be measured. And it also, especially for women, has a relational component, which maybe can't be measured so much or so easily. I know there are studies now that they're doing on women's sexuality and pleasure, uh, where they're talking about the relationships and they've, you know, categorized, you know, where are you on this Likert scale of, you know, feeling attached to the person that you're with. So I, I think sex, if you're talking about sexuality and sexual pleasure and sexual fulfillment, there are so many aspects to bring into it that's going to be beyond the physiological. And that is going to be quite subjective. You know, uh, an ex you could have the exact same experience sexually, let's say, as your brother, you know, on the same night, but you have a cold and he doesn't. You're going to experience it differently. Or you're worried about your taxes. Or, you know, you're thinking about putting the wash in the dryer. Or th there's all kinds of things that come into play sexually that, that change our pleasure ratio. Mm. And, you know, it's probably... I don't know. Um, I'm hesitating to say that I'm not sure there really is going to be a whole lot of difference uh, because people are very adaptive. For example, uh, people who have uh, accidents and become paraplegic or, you know, in a wheelchair, they lose sensation in parts of their body, including their genitals, often will have um, compensatory reactions, other places in their body that you know, their ears were never sexual before, but now, boy, you touch their ears and it's really sexual for them. While maintaining a commitment to truthfulness and accepting that these are very difficult things to quantify objectively, I do think it's important to talk about the sexual effects uh -huh. of circumcision. And I, from my own research, I do believe that there is actually a significant difference. Okay. And I'll, I'll give you... Good. Um, Two examples from conversations that I've had on this very podcast. Mm -hmm. um, the first, uh, I had a conversation with Aubrey Taylor, who's an intactivist who lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and is not shy at all about talking uh, to the world about why she prefers having sex with men who have foreskins. Um, and the way that she framed it was very interesting to me, and I'll, I'll get to the point in a second here, uh, but just to recap, one of the really interesting things that she said was that, on the whole, all things being equal, she finds that intact men, um, that there's something a little more gentle about their approach to lovemaking, and that um, she attributed that to the notion that because they have a mucous membrane at the end of their penis, um, that there's something almost instinctual about knowing how to deal with female mucous membrane and that um i I'm, I'm putting this in very clinical terms um but the, the idea being that because intact uh the intact genitalia more closely resemble the intact male genitalia more closely resemble the intact female mm -hmm. genitalia um that there's almost a sort of body knowledge mm -hmm. about how to handle that so that was one really interesting thing that i very much like to get your take on um mm -hmm. what, what, do you, what do you think about this idea well, I, I completely agree with that, but this is not research, this is theory and observation. And um, I have observed, I've had the good fortune to observe hundreds and hundreds of men and women and men and men and women and women having sex. 
And I've asked many, many uh, intact gay men, what do you dislike about having sex with cut men the most? And they've all said the same thing, that cut men are too rough with my penis. They treat it like their own penis, and they're too rough. And I think what happens is, is that they hurt the guys who are intact by pulling on their foreskin too much forward or especially too much back or attracted towards the body. And that that's a painful thing. So I think, yeah, I would agree. Um, and from my observations, that, that intact men are more gentle sex partners in some ways. And, and what's really interesting to me about that just on a general level is it says something about sexuality too, which is that we, and, and this is not to over oversimplify, but I'm going to oversimplify for the sake of this point, um, that maybe on some level there's a, a, a universal truth here that um, when we're engaging in a sexual practice with a partner, um, we are, we'll come to the table as it were, with um, expectations about how they're going to be feeling based on how things feel to us. Is that a more general principle that's fair to say? Yeah, yeah if I'm following you right. Uh, um, it's kind of like I heard a long time ago that people give the presents to somebody that they really want that person to give to them. Or, you know, you give a present that you really want for yourself. And I think it's kind of the same thing sexually. A lot of times people what feels good to them, they assume is going to feel good to their partner. So they do the same thing to their partner that they like to have done to them. And sex is just so much more complicated than that. Yeah. We also uh, got into a very sort of wildly theoretical side of this discussion and started speculating. And again, I want to be very clear when I'm speaking speculatively, <laughs> but very interesting um, that perhaps a lot of the... Um, classical gender uh, distinctions that people make in our culture are actually not really the result of actual biological difference, but maybe a lot of it actually has to do with the difference between intact sexuality and circumcised sexuality. What do you think about that idea? Well, that's a huge, you know, I mean... I've been saying for years, like, who are the two biggest cutters in the world? The Muslims and the Americans. And look what's going on in the world. So, you know, I don't know. Is that coincidence? Is it significant? I don't know. I'm just a little guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think... Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, that whole book by, I forget his name, the guy who wrote about the psychology of circumcision. Ronald Goldman. Yes, exactly. You know, which is mostly speculative. There's some, there's some good facts in there and research and stuff. But, you know, what does it do to the psyche of a kid to have his penis cut up at eight days or at two days or at six years? What does that do to that kid? You know, and I think... Like we know from most research, it's not going to be the same thing for everybody. Different people are going to respond different ways. Just like, you know, most, as far as I know, most boys who are getting circumcised infants, they scream really loud. And it's horrible to listen to. Although about, I've heard about 25% maybe go silent, which 
worries me. You know, are they dissociating? Are they going to have castration anxiety? What? What's going on with these quiet kids? Why aren't they screaming like the other ones? And so, you're always rolling the dice, of course. Right, because you never know Yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, one of the other conversations that I had was with a fellow by the name of Glenn Callender up in Vancouver, and he's the founder of a, uh, a group called the Foreskin Awareness Project. Uh, he's intact. And um, he makes a very interesting distinction between aware intact men and unaware intact yeah. men. And one of the most interesting things to me about his experience and uh, what he reported to me was um, that in his own life, he went through a phase where he was an unaware intact male. And what he means by that is that um, he just didn't know anything about the contribution of his foreskin to, to, to his sexuality, to his sexual pleasure. By the way, he's um, bisexual, which gives him a very broad mm-hmm. range of experiences with both circumcised and intact and mm-hmm. heterosexual women, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, he said that um, for, for a very long time, he believed, based on the cultural understanding, that most of the pleasure was coming from the head of his penis. Right. And then when he started learning all of these facts and doing research into the foreskin, he started understanding, well, actually, maybe that's not quite right. Mm -hmm. And as his understanding of his anatomy and physiology shifted, his experience of sex completely changed. Well, there you go. He started focusing (coughs) on um, different parts of his foreskin and really sort of trying to understand what each different part can do. And he now claims that he can... um, he, had, he can have multiple orgasms from different uh, ways of touching the foreskin. his foreskin. I believe that. Um, and just such a remarkable story to me about, first of all, the nature of sexuality. Right. And how um, malleable it is and how important your own psychological um, constructions of your body are to experiencing and understanding sexuality. Right. Um, but also then, yeah, this notion that you can you can be mistaken about something, right? You can mm-hmm. think that it's all coming from one place, and it takes a certain kind of attention and study, and then all of a sudden you're experiencing sex in a completely different way. And of course, you know, the implications of all this for circumcision are, well, a guy who's cut, you know, can never really go there. He doesn't have the parts of his penis to become multi-orgasmic or aware or, you know, any of this sort of thing. So so what does this story say to you? What is, what's your Well, he reaction? doesn't have his foreskin, but he can still be multi-orgasmic. He can still be really in touch with his penis. He be, can become more aware, which is what enlightened means, just become more aware of his body and what's going on. Right. I mean, this is reminding me of when, when I talk to doctors, medical doctors, so many of them say to me, you know, Women come in and they are so descriptive of their pain and where it is. And it's, you know, they can describe it's like this, it's like that. And men come in and they're like, you know, well, it's somewhere over there. There's a pain, you know. I think, I don't know if it's cultural or or what, but, you know, men just aren't as in touch with their bodies, period, as women are. You know, we go out, women go in. And I think it's it's not just that simple. I think it's it's that complex. And that, that's interesting because I, I my next question was going to be a lot of guys who learn this sort of information 
um, about the foreskin and what's lost in circumcision and the, the effects on sexual experience and the things that we're talking about get depressed about it. That's right. Um, what what kind of advice would you have for someone like that? Like what what do you say to someone like that? You be you depressed. want them to be aware. Be be sad. You have to go through a grieving process. And I think this is why so many, as you were saying earlier, so many uh, cut men don't want to have this discussion because they're in a happy place of denial. And when I bring this up, you know, I'm shoving in their face from their perspective this horrible tragedy that happened to them that they don't want to talk about. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to feel it. They don't want to deal with it. And uh, I found that it's the women, uh, usually mothers, who seem to get the most angry at me, you know, uh, that I'm bringing this awareness to them that they did something bad to their boys. And how are they going to live with this the rest of their life? That they allowed that to happen to their sons. And for men to grown men to realize, gee, you know, yeah, I like my dick, but it's mutilated. It's, uh, I have had a whore, a piece amputated, you know, that's a lot to reconcile. And um, I haven't done a whole lot of that kind of work here in my office, uh, just a little bit. But, you know, I'm, I usually come from an existential perspective. So, you know, we are what we are. And, you know, if you're cut and you're realizing that it was a horrible thing that happened to you, you're finally realizing that, then you're going to have a rough road for a little bit. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to grieve and get angry and deal with it. You mentioned earlier that there hasn't been a lot of uh, good research done on this issue. Why is that? And of the studies that you're familiar with, um, you know, the Sorrells et al. study that you talked about, the fine, the fine touch mm-hmm. threshold, um, that's one of them. But what are some of the other landmark studies that you're familiar with that you think are important to look at on this issue? Well, I, I think that it's what's more important, if I can be so bold and provocative, is to look at all the bad research that's been done supporting circumcision. I tend to focus on that because this is a political issue, no matter how you slice it. And um, it just seems like the proponents of circumcision, who frankly are mostly Jewish, at least their last names are, in the research, um, they tend to quote the same bad research that they know is bad research over and over and over. And that it just irks me. I, I just, I can't remain calm and zen about that, you know? When this doctor in San Francisco is quoting this penile cancer study, when he knows that study is crap. And yet he keeps quoting it over and over, year after year, decade after decade. And this study was done, what, in 57 or something like that? That said that that uh, uncircumcised men had a higher rate of penile cancer, but it was like one more in the study. You know, It wasn't like, you know, 30 more. It was one more. And, uh, you know, your chances are just about the same getting hit by lightning. 
and getting penile cancer. And, and he knows all of this. So why does he keep bringing that up? You know, that or this, uh, the female in your um in your film, the one I don't like. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that on a sure. podcast? You know, uh, that she was just quoting all this bad research, and it's just a justification for her own political trip. And it has nothing to do with good science, and it really it bothers me. So I, I don't know, I'm sorry I'm ranting here, but I, I much prefer to look at uh, the bad research and talk about why it's bad, because there hasn't really been that much good research done, I don't think, on foreskins. The cultural aspect is so important in this discussion, and it often gets buried. And my favorite example of that is the India study that they talk about, or used to talk about a lot. Um, you know, and it was the headlines of the New York Times, circumcised men less likely to get HIV. And they were comparing cut and intact men for who was getting HIV, seroconverting. They said it in the study, buried in a paragraph, two sentences, um, which didn't hit any of the media in the West, that they were comparing cut Muslim men with intact Hindu men, basically. And they have very different marriage customs, sexuality. You know, the Muslim men can have four wives, which in sexuality we call that meeting uh, the craving of fresh features that many men have. That, you know, they, they, you know they, each night of the week they can have a different woman pretty much, you know, and keep moving and stay fresh as opposed to the Hindu men who only are allowed to have one wife. And the Muslim men are not allowed to have sex outside of marriage, or that's adultery, punishable by death. The Hindu men are encouraged to have sex outside of marriage and are expected to have sex outside of marriage as long as it falls within certain parameters of, for example, with a sacred prostitute or what they call a devadasi, or with a transgendered sex worker, which is also a holy person called the Hydra. And there's certain places that these men can go do that. So of course they're gonna have a higher rate of HIV, but it has nothing to do with their penis being intact or not. Uh, that's why I was saying the moral of this study is if you don't want to get HIV, convert to Islam. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not at all about penises, but that's how we in America have focused on representing this study in India because we want to promote this misconcept that circumcision is cleaner and healthier when it isn't. Um, one of the interesting challenges um, that parents who have decided to leave their sons intact face today in this country, and there's a growing number. Right. We know that the rates of circumcision nationally have been on a steady decline for the last few decades. Right. Um, one of the challenges that they face um, is that there's a, an enormous ignorance right. about the correct care for the intact penis right. in our culture because we've been circumcising for so long. And uh, one of the, the serious problems that these parents face is that they'll bring their child into a pediatrician's office mm -hmm. and before they know what's happening the pediatrician starts the exam opens the diaper boom they retract they forcibly retract mm -hmm. the foreskin which of course is is horrible causes damage the infant screams right um they don't know about the synechia 
they don't know about that. But my one of the things that I've noticed in talking to, um, I talked to John Geisiker, who's uh, one of the directors of Doctors Opposing Circumcision. He's actually a lawyer, but he represents them. And he deals with um, these uh, at least 100 cases a year of forced retractions. Um, and in in his in what he told me about the sort of typical way this happens is that it's almost instantaneous it's like before the parent can even know what's happening boom it's happened yeah and one of the things that that sort of brought up in my mind was you know is there a psychosexual component what would drive a medical professional to very like the first thing you do when you see an intact baby penis is you know you got to see the glands you got to retract what what do you think about that well i think that's a very very profound question and you know i raise this this similar questions often for example uh, the psychotherapists who do reparative therapy to cure gay people and to make them into straight people you know i think like I always wonder, why did you choose that? Of all the different kinds of psychological issues you could be treating, what is it that makes some people choose to spend their entire lives stopping gay people from being gay? Does that say something about their own psychology, that they're trying to stop themselves from being gay? I don't know, but it's a good question, you know? And... Uh, I, I pose the same question with lots of things psychologically. Why, you know, why do we do these things that we do? So I don't know why these individual doctors may feel a need to retract this foreskin and punish these kids who have more than they do, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it speaks also to the larger issue of um, how cutting cultures perpetuate their practices you know if you were just to ask someone just an average person in this in the street who had their child circumcised why did you do it Mm -hmm. they'll probably give you a litany of it's cleaner it's healthier it looks like but i'm starting to get the sense that these are you know they're they're cultural markers for something that's much deeper Mm -hmm. that's going on and you have to wonder about the sort of cycle of violence, the cycle of cutting, the cut becoming the cutters. Um, so I yes. wonder if that, if some of that's going on here too. Sure. I think so. And, you know, we're a country that perpetuates in many ways that cutting is better. And um, I think people believe that, you know. That's, that's why we got to our height of cutting in the 50s, I think. It's because Dr. Spock said, go ahead and do it. It's healthier. And it was as soon as he wrote that letter that people, you know, saying, no, actually, now I think it's not healthier and I no longer support circumcision that people started. You know, so like if you look at the Hispanic community, the way, what I've understood it to be is that most of them don't cut, except for the more educated ones who have basically bought into white Western dominant culture, that it's better to do that. What do you think going forward is the best strategy for getting people to think twice about this? In America. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I don't know. I, I kind of sometimes I'll be driving around daydreaming about, you know, what could we do, you know? And I, I think people are doing the right things. I like the billboard campaigns. Um, you know, modern couples don't cut or whatever, you know, these different... Uh, I, I think that has a good impact. And I think just talking about it and educating... I'll tell you, uh, I've had a few college students who said shared with class that they went and got circumcised a few weeks ago or a few months ago or last year. And every time when I ask them, why did you do it? They never say, because it's cleaner or any of those other excuses that Americans use that aren't true. They always say, because that's the way the porn stars are. And they want to look more like a porn star. And then I ask them, have you ever watched gay porn? And they go, no. <laughs> you know? So, um, I would say I'd like to see that happening more in straight porn. And I know one porn maker who's doing that because I've talked to her about it and she agrees. And she's now making sure that every porn film she uses, there's just as many intact men as cut men. And, um, but that's a drop in the bucket for straight porn, you know? Yeah. And, and it's still that way. Most straight porn in America, the men are cut. And I think you're talking about a really important thing that oftentimes is overlooked, which is the aesthetic uh -huh. um, argument, right? Um, which we might dismiss out of hand, but there are a lot of people who take oh. that very, very seriously. Oh, yeah. And I would say even some parents, when you hear mothers talking about it, mm -hmm. um, they'll say things like, well, I don't want you know my kid's penis to have a turtleneck or, or something right. dismissive yeah. along those lines. But again, what they're really getting at is that aesthetically they prefer the circumcised penis. Because that's what they've been exposed to. Right. You know, I had a wonderful argument in a class once where one uh, white woman said that uh, intact penises are ugly, that whole turtle skin and turtle neck, you know, that it's disgusting. And, uh, and she felt uh, perfectly entitled to express that opinion that was so derogatory towards the intact men in the room, which I guess she wasn't paying attention to. And then a uh, Hispanic woman said, well, that's weird because I really like foreskin. And I think when they're cut, they look sick. They look disgusting, like something's missing. And I will not have sex with a cut man, you know. And they got into this huge thing. And then I asked the white woman, I said, you're Jewish, aren't you? And she said, yes. I said, have you ever been with, a with an uncircumcised man and sexually? And she said, no. I said, have you ever seen one live or only in pictures? And she said, only in pictures. So, you know, I think it's very culturally constructed, this whole aestheticism and, and you know, the aesthetics of, of the penis. It's an amazing thing, too, to contemplate the scar tissue. I mean, a circumcised penis from the scar till the end of the penis is essentially scar tissue. I know. That, that, that a pathological state has been internalized in our culture as the normal penis. I suppose it shouldn't be shocking if you go to African cultures where other kinds of body mm -hmm. modifications are common. I imagine exactly the same sort of thing happens there. Right. And in cultures where women are cut, mm -hmm. um, I think that that's also true. Right. That, um, that circumcised uh, female genitalia are seen as beautiful. And Yeah, it's interesting. If you could share with us 
how you've dealt with the information that you were circumcised. You're clearly very aware of the fact and you, you've given it thought. Um, different guys deal with it in different ways. It hits them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay the way I am. I don't, you know, I have a great sex life. Foreskin or no. You know, it was, there's this 20 minute or 18 minute documentary film that was made called XXXY. And it's a talking head film with two intersex people. And both of them were born male. And one of them was changed in childhood into a female. They thought it was because uh, he was born with undescended testes and a large clitoris is what they thought. So they decided to cut off the clitoris, which was really his penis. And um, you see now her going through this metamorphosis in the film of uh, coming to terms with the fact that she has to forgive her parents for what they did to her. And this is who she is, no matter how angry or, or not. And so that not that really the existential work that has to be done for those of us who have been mutilated to try to be okay with it at some point? Winston Wow, thank you so much for joining us on the Cut Podcast. I really appreciate it. Where can people learn more about here. your work? You could go to winstonwild.com, and there I am. With an E. Wow. With an E, yeah. W-I-N-S-T-O-N-W-I-L-D-E dot com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ellie. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.